3: Call Buck Toll Free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton.
1: We declare that our will is renewed. Our future is regained. And our dreams are restored. Every American has a role to play in this grand citizen to take their part in our vital mission. Together, our task is to strengthen our families, to build up our communities, to serve our citizens, and to celebrate American greatness as a shining example to the world. As long as we are proud, and very proud of who we are, how we got here, are fighting for to preserve we will not fail
2: team Buck Sexton here welcome to the Freedom Hut that was President Trump earlier today speaking about his national security strategy the White House released the paper the draft of it and then the president gave a speech to hit on the key points and I think we can say that we have the beginnings Uh, at least the outline of, perhaps, a sense of the philosophy of the Trump Doctrine. That's what he was talking about today. I will spend some time this hour with you on that national security philosophy, on what I would call the Trump Doctrine. And we will work our way into a whole bunch of other stories as well, including the praise from Putin for Trump helping to stop a terror attack at a cathedral in St. Petersburg, And how some on the left view that as problematic. This this has really gone into the realm of of a psychosis for a lot of Democrats. Even when another country says, thanks for helping us stop a mass casualty jihadist attack in a Christian cathedral. There are naysayers. There are doubters. There are people who take a bizarrely cynical view of the whole situation. I will get into that with you, uh, as well as some discussion of the... FBI and what over the course of the weekend at Fox News I was calling the deep state family tree of the DOJ and the FBI and all these different characters and what we know about them, what we're learning about them. One of them today, I believe it was, was it or today who testified or does he testify tomorrow? I forget the order, um, but we have one important testimony from the DOJ official today and then I believe another one scheduled for tomorrow. Uh, Also, the future of the Mueller investigation, we will talk about that, and we've got a lot to cover here, as well as any updates that come in on this terrible Amtrak crash out in Washington State that, at last count, I saw seven dead and over 60 wounded, a a very large and very concerning uh, train derailment out there in Washington State, and uh, thoughts and prayers go to everybody affected. Well, let's talk about the uh, the national security components of what Trump laid out today. Uh, as I was saying, uh, the Trump doctrine, it is a very different approach, and you have to compare it to what came before to have an understanding of how radical the departure really is. But it's very different from what was put forth by President Obama and also what was enacted by obama for eight years as a kind of i don't know trip down memory lane i went back and read the 2015 national security strategy of the obama administration so at the latter obviously stage of the obama presidency after the blitzkrieg of the islamic state into iraq and its seizure of much of syria after a series of very large-scale terrorist attacks in Europe on and here in America on behalf of the Islamic State. President Obama did not refer to Islam in 2015 more than once. He referred to it one time in that 2015 national security document. His administration referred to it one time to say that Islam is, or the U.S. is not at war with Islam. That was it. Beyond that, there was a lot of talk of countering violent extremism, Uh, there was an unwillingness to get into any specifics about anything having to do with radical Islam, and here's just a sense of what we were dealing with. So before I can tell you what we are dealing with with Trump, let's talk about what we were dealing with with the Islamic State, I mean, sorry, with Obama and his descriptions of the Islamic State, which he also insisted on calling ISIL. And I know that people have all these theories about how it was a slap in the face to Israel. And look, I don't buy that. That's it's too convoluted to be meaningful. It's just because Obama thought that that was what smart people said about the Islamic state. You call it the Islamic state of Iraq and the Levant. And, and it was bizarre. I think it was pedantic. I think it was kind of showy. Like, this is what this, this is how the smart people refer to it. And everyone else can call it ISIS. It's just weird. No, it's called ISIS. We all know that now. That's what everyone's calling it. There was no need for all that. But here's what Obama would say about violent extremism. Remember, this is not the beginning of his presidency. This is after ISIS's rise. This is after mass casualty terror attacks. Here's what he said.
0: And when all of us together are doing our part to reject the narratives of violent extremists, when all of us are doing our part to be very clear about the fact that There are certain universal precepts and values that need to be respected in this interconnected world. That's the beginnings of a partnership. Nice and preachy. As we go forward, we need to find new ways to amplify the voices of peace and tolerance and inclusion.
2: This is what I would expect from most International Relations 101 classes, a professor talking about how the world functions, right? It's just about creating partnerships and universal precepts and values. What are those values? Are they American values? Do they conflict with large ideological systems that aren't American values? You know, Do we get to talk about it? No, no, no. Just speak in vague grandiloquence, and people will think that you have some idea of what you're talking about. Speak in these notions of bureaucraties and ease, It was astonishing to go back and read the Obama national security document, because I will say that having read, having gone back again and read it for 2015, it was a pretty accurate template of how Obama was going to approach the world. And as Trump said today, when he came into office uh, or since he has come into office, a lot of it's just about cleaning up the mess. Notions of strategic patience in dealing with North Korea, strategic patience in dealing with North Korea was the Obama strategy. We don't have time. We are running out of time with North Korea. The f- better their missiles get, the more numerous their nuclear missile capability becomes. Sure, we have some countermeasures that we could talk about. We even have the uh, horrifying but real possibility of having to engage in a first strike if we think that North Korea is going to hit us first. And they're getting better and better with their missiles all the time. So it's a moving part the expression. It's a moving target. This notion that we can counter them, we can just live with a North Korea with nukes. I think we may find ourselves in that situation for some period of time, but we don't have, we don't have time to burn. That was their policy. Just like in Libya, lead from behind, well, the country will burn to the ground. Would the Islamic State build an international coalition that is held back by the dictates of both political correctness in combating the narrative and the need to not look bad on the nightly news here at home with our airstrikes and anything else that's going on? From the U.S. side, Trump beat the Islamic State, and everyone that is paying attention to what's happened in Iraq and Syria, saying, "Wow, that was that was a lot faster than it was supposed to be." Well, yeah, it's because Trump came into office and he said, "How do we beat the bad guys?" You know, I understand that when talking about foreign policy, there's an impulse. A lot of people like foreign policy because they get to they think that they sound smart. They're never proven wrong. The horizons are so distant. And you know, I say, well, you know, I think that uh, you know, our relationship with China in five years, and you know, who knows, right? You're never held to account for it. But you, if you learn a few buzzwords and you talk about multilateralism and working through international institutions, all the things that were centerpieces of the Obama administration before and the way they approached the world, you get to sound kind of smart on it. But it's, it's all meaningless, right? It's it's piffle. It's a waste doesn't tell you anything trump's approach to the world is look there are good guys and bad guys and there are people who are somewhere in between but we we approach the world from the perspective of allies and enemies he talked today about russia and china and how they are you refer to them in the national security document as revisionist powers but they are challenges they're not enemies per se they are challenges north korea and iran are enemies So we've got to figure out a way to deal with them as enemies. We'd love for them to not be enemies anymore. Japan and Germany were enemies at one point. Now they're close U.S. allies, right? But there has to be some clarity in the thinking. It can't get all caught up in the pretense of intellectualism, when in reality it's just a lot of feel-good, U.N.-speak nonsense. That was what was, and the focus on climate change in the past, too, I should note. it, It was just absolutely absurd. I mean, here's here's the 2015 Obama speech on what we had to worry about from a national security perspective.
0: Climate change will impact every country on the planet. No nation is immune. So I'm here today to say that climate change constitutes a serious threat to global security, an immediate risk to our national security, and make no mistake, it will impact how our military defends our country. And so we need to act, and we need to act now
2: Uh, an imminent threat to national security i I don't even the rise of the seas I mean, he really believes that this is this is almost obscene in its stupidity but it's a widespread belief among democrats and on the left and obama was out there touting it and here we are now we get to move away from all that no more bowing no more uh delay and act like it's some brilliant strategy no more pivot to asia or leading from behind or any of that stuff, right? Red lines that get erased in Syria. Now we're in a new era, the Trump era, and the Trump doctrine is deal with the world as it is. Deal with the world as it affects American interests. They keep talking about America first. That's one of the top lines of of the speech today, that in America first foreign policy, that the U.S. government should have as its goal benefiting the American people in all aspects when it comes to national security. It's so straightforward, right? It's so obvious to you, those of you out there listening, and yet it's different than what we have had in the past. We had almost eight years of, well, we need to be balancing our interests, meaning the U.S. government needs to be balancing the interests of its citizens with non-citizens, with illegals, with People all over the world with foreign countries and their way of doing it. And remember, American exception, Americans are exceptional the same way that the Greeks view themselves as exceptional. That was one of the great Obama isms of the previous era. We're in a different place now. We have a new strategy that's all about competition, prosperity, and the interests of Americans and, and an understanding of the fact that we are in a competition. And the U.S. government needs to view it that way.
1: Grounded in these truths, we are presenting to the world our new national security strategy. Based on my direction, this document has been in development for over a year. It has the endorsement of my entire cabinet. Our new strategy is based on a principled realism. Realism guided by our vital national interests, and rooted in our timeless values. This strategy recognizes that whether we like it or not, we are engaged in a new era of competition. We accept that vigorous military, economic, and political contests are now playing out all around the world.
2: The U.S. government can either take the approach of what's best for us, for Americans first, or can view itself as some kind of referee. You could say the U.S. government could decide who's paying their fair share around the world. And that's not the approach that should be taken. That's not why we pay taxes. That's not why we are citizens of this country. And finally, we have a president who understands that. Look, we'll spend more time on this, and I believe we actually have the White House uh, sending us a Uh, a member of the team to call in in just a little bit to talk to us about some of the messaging from today. We'll also get into other stories, the latest on the Mueller probe. Uh, If I have time, we might even talk about how Venezuela is now entering the eighth circle of hell. Uh, Social justice in action, folks, when it runs an economy, people literally starve to death. If we don't get to that today, though, certainly later on in the week. Uh, And if we have any breaking news for you on the Amtrak derailment, we'll certainly bring that to you. 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. More on the Trump Doctrine this hour coming up.
1: We must protect the American people, the homeland, and our great American way of life. This strategy recognizes that we cannot secure a nation if we do not secure our borders. So for the first time ever, American strategy now includes a serious plan to defend our homeland. It calls for the construction of a wall on our southern border, ending chain migration and the horrible visa and lottery programs, closing loopholes that undermine enforcement and strongly supporting our border patrol agents ICE officers, and homeland security personnel. And we will develop new ways to counter those who use new domains such as cyber and social media to attack our nation or threaten our society.
2: It says a lot that it's almost a revolutionary idea in the context of recent foreign policy and national security in this country to think of protecting America – This country and its borders before we talk about any international agreements and the Paris Accords and all this other stuff. It's pretty amazing when you think about it, that Trump speaking about securing our borders is, one, reviled by the Democrat elites and by the left. They don't want to hear about that. They like the status of of near open borders that we've had for decades now. They they much prefer that. They much prefer that people can come and go as they please illegally, so long as they can you know, get around a, a, an overworked and often uh, undersupported Border Patrol. Certainly undersupported by previous administrations. I would tell you the Obama administration and, and, yes, even the Bush administration as well. Bush gets quite a pass, my friends, on immigration. I perhaps will talk to you about that another day. The Bush family, very favorable towards illegal immigration and amnesty when you look at a lot of the policies and the way that they treated Border Patrol in particular. But okay, uh, it's a story for another time. Back to Trump and the notion of the defense of the homeland as the first national security uh, principle. This is essential. And a strong homeland that, and that means economically There was even reference to American culture and the propagation of American culture in the Trump national security strategy, that there's something special about this country and its people and its citizenry and that we need to protect that as well. That America is an idea. There's something of an ideology that binds us all together as much as we may bicker and argue and got writers for BuzzFeed talking about how they want communism now. Do you see that? That's not surprising, by the way. Come for the cat videos, stay for the communism. BuzzFeed's new slogan. Uh, but I just find it so refreshing. I, I think that was my biggest single response to Trump's national security speech today. Was finally here we are. The obvious is spoken and not hidden. The truth is out there for people to make their own decisions about. And but we can finally say that you know up is up and down is down and friends and allies, enemies, and evildoers, we start to separate the world into a a construct that makes sense because it's based on what's really happening, not the world as we would wish it to be in the faculty lounge. So it's a big change. Uh, We're going to talk a little more about this, and we'll talk about the role of radical Islam in Trump's foreign policy strategy, national security strategy. Stay with me. Our
1: rivals are tough. They're tenacious and committed to the long term. But so are we. To succeed, we must integrate every dimension of our national strength and we must compete with every instrument of our national power. Under the Trump administration, America is gaining wealth, leading to enhanced power faster than anyone thought, with six trillion dollars more in the stock market alone since the election.
2: President Trump speaking about how this era of national security strategy and certainly economic prosperity will be different from what we saw under his predecessor. To help us work through some of the details of the speech and the document today, we have Michael Anton on the line now. He is the uh, National Security Council's spokesman. Michael, thank you for joining us from uh, D.C. Thank you. Thank you. So for people that either watch the speech in part today or maybe were just able to glance over some of the national security strategy document, uh, what are the biggest what's the biggest takeaway I and mean, what's the 60 second version of what the president wants everybody to know?
4: Well, i say the 60-second takeaway is that, first and foremost, this document begins from his words, and it's totally consistent with his campaign speeches and with the speeches that he's given throughout 2017 and with the actions he's taken throughout 2017. And the second point is that, while it's consistent with his own words and actions, it does, in many respects, offer some serious change in course from previous national security strategies. And I can just mention three key areas that are are very different. Uh, The first would be a... This this takes a more detailed look and focus on homeland security and border security than any national security strategy in the past ever has. It really recognizes that foreign policy national security are absolutely linked with homeland security. You can't separate the two. Um, The second point would be that this takes into account uh, the economic realm. In a, in a more complete way than any uh, prior national security strategy ever has. And in particular, uh, America's trading relationship with other countries that's gotten significantly imbalanced in ways that have harmed American interests, American communities, American industries. And the third thing is I, I think former national security strategies tended to assume um, a lack of competition or a harmonious world where all the great powers would get together and cooperate and solve problems and everything would just be a-OK. Okay. Uh, this national security strategy sees the world as it is. It recognizes that we still live in a fundamentally competitive environment in the military realm, in the economic realm, uh, in the information realm, uh, and it, it, it's forthright about that, and it says America has to compete, it has to win, and it's got to be honest about what certain other, you know, the uh, when certain other great powers' interests don't match up with ours.
2: Now, I've already mentioned, Michael, in the program that this administration and this president is willing to speak uh, forthrightly, or maybe I should say just to speak about uh, radical Islam, jihadism. The term uh, jihad or jihadist appears numerous times in the National Security Strategy document. We played before President Obama would refer to just... Generic, violent extremism. Beyond the rhetorical, what are the ways that the Trump administration will fight jihadists? And it's good that they're saying jihadists. But beyond just the importance of the rhetoric and the ideology in that battle, what are some different uh, different approaches that people should expect from Trump and this administration when it comes to beating those radical jihadists?
4: First, the rhetoric is important because when you're not telling the truth even to yourself, when a country puts in a formal national security strategy document and it can't forthrightly say where the threat emanates from, that infuses and hinders policy throughout
2: the board. Especially in an uh, ideological war, which everyone always talks about. So if everyone says you, we're fighting you, you the you ideology, you got to... Be you, gotta, that's, yeah.
4: you know, that's, that's, what, um, that's what the president did throughout the campaign. He was honest in a way that caused a lot of, uh, a lot of people to be get out, become outraged, but that's because they hadn't, they'd gotten used to not hearing threats described honestly and this ideology described forthrightly. So as to what we're doing, I mean the, the president's anti-terror strategy is very simple to summarize. It is really three prongs. One is deny the terrorists safe havens, meaning don't let them control physical territory from which they can launch attacks against the American homeland or American interests. Two is cut off the financing. And three is discredit the ideology. And you've seen actions on all three fronts throughout this year. Um, you know, I can j- just on the on the uh, safe haven front alone, the ISIS, is its physical caliphate, the territory it controls, the cities it controls, the population center it controls. It, it controls almost nothing anymore. That's not to say ISIS is gone. There are still bad people who claim to be ISIS out there trying to harm us. But, you know, their control over Mosul and Raqqa, over the Euphrates River Valley, over a, large parts of Syria and northern Iraq, has been just destroyed on the ground. They have basically are, are steps away from losing this war.
2: And Michael, I want to um, ask you about that, and we're speaking to Michael Anton, who's a uh, National Security Council's spokesman uh, the president has has presided over the destruction of the caliphate. Right, ISIS as an ideology still exists, but it no longer is a state. Well, a,
4: I, as an ideology and as people, I mean, there are ISIS networks. There are people right. who claim that there's ISIS affiliates, arms, and but everyone who it, listens to, to the show is, is
2: is well aware of that. But what I wanted to ask you about uh, specifically with regard to the Islamic State and the losses that it has sustained is that I'll say this is a perception that I have, and I think others have it as well. This is a big win for the president, and I feel like we don't hear about it enough. It's a big win that shows the administration working with our allies in the Muslim world to defeat and destroy the Islamic State. We don't hear about it that much. Is it because there are other priorities, or is it because the media doesn't talk about it enough?
4: Well, you know, I would refer you to a column in, of all places, the New York Times. Yeah, Douthat, I saw it. Douthat, who made this point. Um, This is... Uh, I I think it's, it's, it, it is, it is partly that, um, um, you know, that the media doesn't necessarily want to give the, this president credit, and they'll come up with all these ways to say, well, he didn't really do it. You know, it was uh, Iraqi and uh, Syrian Defense Forces partners that did all the fighting, which we would, of course, be the first to acknowledge. It's one of the, the, the great uh, and notable things about this success is this was not done uh, with American troops shouldering most of the burden, with American troops uh, you know, playing the, the tip of the spear role. The American troops are in support, for sure, but in relatively small numbers compared to the large numbers of partner forces. That are fighting this fight, which is the way it should be. This is fundamentally more their fight than it is our fight, right? These these problems that are um, should are better off always dealt with. By forces as close to the problem as possible. And, and the reality is, you know, U.S. power is not going to be able to solve all the world's problems the way I think some assumed throughout the 2000s and, and, and used large numbers of American forces to solve every problem. Locals have to have to do this and do the hard work. And we want to be there to help, but uh, very much in a supporting role.
2: And as to the countries that he identifies as what was formerly under the Bush administration, the axis of evil, what we could say are are enemy states, I mean, rogue regimes, specifically Iran and North Korea. It seems to me like both from the administration's rhetoric as well as some more recent uh, policy moves, decisions, that 2018 is going to be a year of confrontation. I don't mean necessarily military confrontation, but confronting the threats from Iran and North Korea. What can you tell us about what we should expect, at least from the perspective of how they're going to go about this?
4: I think, well, I don't know about confrontation specifically. I think 2018 will continue to be, just like 2017 was, a year when the United States speaks forthrightly about these threats and is honest about them. Um, You saw uh, the president in October was uh, very bracingly honest about what Iran does to undermine U.S. interests. Iran's essentially been fighting a proxy war against the United States since the 1979 revolution. And the previous administration, wanted to downplay and even deny the, all the ways Iran was uh, harming U.S. interests and even killing American soldiers on, on the battlefield because they wanted better relations with Iran so they could get the Iran deal, uh, which this president and our administration believes was a terrible deal. Well, we're just – this administration is not going to sugarcoat or whitewash what Iran does anymore. We're going to be honest about it, and we're going to stand up to Iran on the three prongs I talked about, cutting off terrorist financing, denying safe haven and uh, discrediting the ideology. So one of the places Iran is trying to gain a a permanent safe haven is they want a little piece of Syria that they can dig in and build a base near Israel's border and threaten American interests and American allies, and we're going to do everything we can to prevent that.
2: And on North Korea, before we let you go?
4: On North Korea, it's a matter of denying the regime the resources it needs both to develop... The weapons, uh, ballistic missiles, and nuclear weapons, and denying it the resources it needs essentially to continue on this course. So, on the the narrower case, is just you know you need money to, to to and to import material pay your scientists, design and build these things, right? But in the larger sense, they need hard currency and they need outside resources to to keep that regime going on its course. Now, our policy is not regime change for North Korea, but our policy is that the regime change its direction. And they're feeling significant economic pain, we believe, from the sanctions that have been imposed so far. And we don't think that can continue indefinitely. And it is our hope that denying the regime resources will ultimately induce it to change its behavior,
2: Michael Anton is the spokesman for the National Security Council. Uh, Michael, appreciate your time, but I thank you very much. Thank you. Team, we're going to roll into a break. We're going to come back and talk a bit more about national security issues. 844-900-2825. 844-900-BUCK. Uh, what was the left focusing on today? That would be an interesting place for us to go. Uh, the The media, if you can believe it, on a day when Trump gave a very effective speech and outlined a very... Ah, uh, in-depth and intelligent and uh, forceful national security strategy. We're hearing just crazy talk from the uh, resistance media about what's what, what their version of events is. We'll talk about some of that after the break. Stay with me. So I have much more in the national security realm that I want to talk to you about today, and I I'm, I always struggle with how much of the show I can devote to that particular topic versus everything you know, news cycle stuff, politics. I'm, I'm aware of this story. I read this story in Politico about uh, Hezbollah and the Obama administration. If, if we don't hit that today, I'll have the team here in Miami. We'll get into some of that tomorrow because it is uh, very, very interesting. And it's a reminder of how much of – I think you've heard me say this before on the show, that President Obama was willing to mortgage most of our foreign policy in the Middle East to uh, – to even undermine it, or to, to brush it aside in favor of getting that Iran, Iran nuclear deal. Uh, so that's that's a, a we'll get to it. But I, I had to also spend a moment here on how you know over the weekend I I'm I try to disconnect a little bit and and but it ends up being kind of a lie because I'm always getting ready for the week ahead and I just. I want to bring as much as I can to the show whenever I can, which means that I spend way too much time reading the news. And I think I did Fox on Saturday and on Sunday and this morning in the 5 a.m. and the 6 a.m. hour. And I'll be on uh, the Fox Business Show later tonight, Kennedy. So it's been a busy few days, folks. Uh, But with all that, I couldn't help but notice that there was a a tweet from Jake Tapper over at CNN who is – less i think it would be wrong to say that he is uh fair towards the administration he's not but he is less hysterically unfair than some of his uh other cnn compatriots uh colleagues comrades comrades the comrade news network there we go we could establish that one cnn it works doesn't it you know you got to give msnbc credit they're like look we've been left forever meaning on the left and their ratings are good. Uh, they're doing well. And Fox is obviously crushing it. CNN's left in the middle being like, we're honest. We're the honest brokers. We're just down the middle. Everyone's like, you guys are not. So stop pretending. But Ta- uh, Tapper tweeted out and I responded. He didn't respond to me and that's fine. He doesn't have to, but it's, you know, public discussion. And I, I didn't, I don't go after people personally on Twitter and stuff like that. Cause I think that, or at least I try not to occasionally I might lose my temper. Um, you know, I might have said that like Anna Navarro is the worst pundit on TV, which is accurate analysis, I think, but not nice, so I shouldn't say things like that or write things like that. Uh, but Jake Tapper uh, picked, and remember, this is one of their mainline news anchors over at, at CNN over the weekend, going into the National Security Strategy document released today and the speech, and all the journalists know this stuff, right? They've got this marked on their calendars. He, there's, this, uh, there's this piece that was out about from the Washington Post. And Tapper takes a pull quote from it. Unfortunately, this is from this post piece. President Trump echoes the rhetoric of despots in these countries with his combative slogan of fake news. What's not fake at all is that journalists everywhere are under increased threat because of rulers who take encouragement from Mr. Trump's malice, end quote. And I responded to Jake because I thought this should be responded to because the piece was about journalists around the world who are in prison. And the Washington Post is like, so there are these places where there are journalists in prison and one or two despots have used the term fake news recently. Ergo, Trump is at fault for journalists rotting in prison in these places. This is what the Washington Post is saying. And Jake Tapper is sharing that. He's not advocating it, but he's sharing it, which in, in context is advocating it. Right? Sharing, that, sharing that, poll, uh, that poll quote from that piece. This is how bias actually manifests itself. You know, it's not that people are at CNN are, are constructing completely fabricated, checkable facts on a regular basis. Although that happens, too. It, it, bias is uh, more malleable and, and also more insidious than that. But I responded to Tapper. The journalists are not sitting in prison in Turkey, China or Egypt because of anything Trump said or did. And for The Washington Post and Tapper to share it uh, to suggest any connection or to bring the uh, president into this just to take a cheap shot is wildly irresponsible. This is this is just, we've gone into crazy town now. Right? There are journalists in prison in Turkey and China, and the Washington Post is writing about that, but it's actually Trump's fault. This is a delusion now. This is a, a form of deliriousness. Right, They have lost touch with reality. China's been jailing journalists for a long time. Right? The Great Firewall of China, all the different bans on the internet, internet activity there, and what you can say, and you have no due process rights, no constitution, none of that. Turkey is really the worst country in the world, and I should note, for journalism, and I should note that it has gotten a lot worse as the country's government has become more Islamist, and I don't think that that's, a mis- that's not an accident. And then in Egypt, we got a complicated relationship with Egypt. We're going to have to figure out what we're doing there, because... Well, the Egyptians used to be much more important to our national security strategy in the Middle East than they than they are now, and there's a lot of repression and a lot of problems. But this is just what I mean about the delusions, the deliriousness, the the silly, the silly objections of uh, to Trump that come from otherwise supposedly serious people in the media. And then you also had uh, Saliza, who's over at CNN as a Media analyst there, I think, or I don't know, he's a political analyst, media analyst, something like that, sharing a, a tweet earlier t- This is from today, where he says that uh, former DNI, former director of national intelligence, Clapper, said, so this was a quote, but it's being shared at CNN, that, uh, you know, Trump is being handled by Putin as though Trump is an asset. You know, using intelligence speak here is to say that tr- it's a way of implying that Trump is an asset of the Russian government that Putin approaches him that way because that's the reality, right? It's, it's actually kind of a, an intelligence Russia collusion dog whistle. But, but it's such a smear. And I just would repeat that at this point in time, if DNI Clapper, and this is a challenge I like to put out there for all the never Trump deep staters, all these former senior intel officials, well, I'll just tell you, I'll just come out and say it. A lot of them are just lifelong bureaucrats who aren't that smart and aren't that impressive. It's just the truth. People, oh, so and so was the, you know, the the big, you know, muckety muck in charge of whatever, and it's like, yeah, but that doesn't mean very much to me because I was in the government and I saw, I saw that it's generally uh, at the at the senior levels, a lot of it is just who stays around. It's just the truth in the federal bureaucracy. That's not everyone, but it's a lot of the time. But what I would say to this, and this will maybe take us into our discussion of the uh, the FBI coming up here in a few moments and where all that stands. If Clapper or anyone from the Obama administration, the senior levels of intelligence, had actual evidence of Russia collusion, I've said to you in the past, not only would we know about it, but forget that for a second. It is their obligation. I don't care what the consequences would be to share that with the American people. And I think they know that. And so they're either cowards or they don't have the evidence. And you know what? They don't have the evidence. This is just all a mirage. Welcome back, team. Thank you so much for being here with me and much to discuss here. Some updates on the uh, Mueller-Russia collusion investigation. I want to talk to you more about that because there were all these rumors over the weekend, and they were just rumors that you know, Trump is, uh, Trump is going to fire Mueller. And those rumors were being spread after Trump said this. No, I'm not. No. What else? <laughs> I don't know if Everybody's you can catch surprised. the question because you had the the jet engine in the background there. But are you gonna fire Mueller? No. No, I am not. <laughs> that was what Trump said, and I was seeing all over Twitter of the week. and He's gonna fire Mueller. There's gonna be a constitutional crisis because he's gonna fire Mueller. And I'm like, well. Uh, I don't think he should fire Mueller. I've written, in fact, that he should not fire Mueller because there's really no reason to uh, at this point. That could change. But the whole Mueller investigation is coming up with nada on Trump. And if he were to fire him, I think it would be a detriment to Trump and his team. Because then the story, you know, what the story would be, you don't know I mean to tell you always fired Mueller because Mueller was just about to find the truth. And as I've told you many times here, think about conspiracies. The problem with conspiracies is that they're complicated and that all you need is one leak. One person who changes teams, decides they're going to work for the other side or they want to come clean. They've got a, a conscience that they have to alleviate in some way. And the whole conspiracy blows up in your face. Conspiracies are complicated. They're not easy to pull off. I'm not saying they don't exist. I think that we may have found one at the FBI and the DOJ in opposition to Trump. But we'll get to that in just a moment. But this notion that uh, Trump would fire Mueller because Mueller's just about to have those and find those bits of information that will finally bring this whole thing crashing down this whole White House to an end, it's just not reality. But if he were to fire Miller, that's what they would say. That would be the storyline. We would know. As I keep telling you, we would know. And as I was alluding to before the break, where I think I actually, I guess I just said it. I didn't allude to it. It would be the obligation of the former director of national intelligence. I don't care what the sources and methods issues involved are, I, you know, n- nonsense. If he knew for real that Trump had worked with the Russians or Russian intelligence in some way that was illegal or treasonous or whatever. I mean, it wouldn't be treason, but whatever it would be. He should just tell the American people. He should just tell the American people what it is. And I should note, if he had it, he would have told us. He doesn't have it. He's got nothing. And I also take the point of view that on so much of what you hear about the FBI and Mueller and Russia and all this stuff, well, Mueller now, it is trying to, uh, it, it's trying to find a conclusion where, or get to the conclusion that they'll ever really get to, and it's also because I think that we're viewing this in the wrong context. The people who initially were involved in both Hillary's emails as well as starting this Russia collusion narrative all assumed Hillary was going to win. So, if we're looking for bad behavior, if you're looking to find evidence that there were people in high levels in the government, at the FBI and the DOJ, for example, acting in bad faith, keep in mind that they would be acting in bad faith with the assumption that Hillary Clinton would be the president. And so anything that they would have done to surveil or uh, stymie or harm the Trump campaign would not only be covered up, it would be rewarded later on. Right. If, if Hillary's top people found out that they were doing a little, little snooping, a little, you know, they'd have some pretext for it. So legally, they wouldn't be in trouble. But ethically speaking, what do you think that Clinton's all of a sudden are going to develop ethics when Hillary's president? Please. But I think this is what's often lost, that now that we are unearthing things at FBI and DOJ, now we start to see that there may have been a conspiracy, just not the one the media has always been telling us about, that there may be, in fact, a cabal that was a small group, it's not everyone at FBI, it's not everyone at DOJ, but that they were taking anti-Trump actions and using their powers in office and using their authority as senior government employees. And doesn't that make a lot more sense? It certainly makes more sense than Trump was working with the Russian government in some harebrained scheme to beat Hillary and expose himself to all the stuff that we're seeing now. It's not even a good plan, right? But the FBI and the DOJ, a few people at them. I want to keep reiter- reiterating that. I'm not talking about the entirety of the institutions, but some senior folks in them. Keep in mind that the surveillance operation that was going on, right, under the under the auspices of a counterintelligence investigation, that surveillance operation could have gleaned just one piece of information, one quote from Trump to a senior official one thing that when leaked to the washington post and the new york times could have ended trump's hopes of the presidency right you can conjure up any number of things in your mind but keep keep that as an as a uh an option here or, or as a a fact to store away in your mind that yes they were looking at russia trump collusion but they also were just opening up the possibility of doing intel as oppo research on trump and maybe they figured that they would get some stuff and they never got it and then after the fact once trump won they freaked out and they had to find a way to justify this remember there was a leak of the incoming national security advisors phone call with the russian ambassador and this is high level stuff everybody that happened that happened that was a criminal leak it was high level Somebody was willing to do that. That's a pretty desperate thing to do, isn't it? That's a risking your career and prison time move. But, no, no, the, the conspiracy on that side, uh, uh, never, right? Oh, by the way, just as an aside, I see that David Gurdens popped up on CNN. David Gurdens, former presidential advisor, and this is, you know, Moore's going to say the Trump administration is going you know, to fire Mueller. And it's the worst thing I've seen since Nixon and Ford and Gerald Ford and Nixon, you know, back in the early days, Johnson and Nixon and Ford. I don't know why they put this guy on TV, but he's like the worst revered political analyst I've ever seen in my life. Never heard him say anything interesting or insightful, but it sounds like this and he's 15 presidents in a row. That's all you need. Gurgling with Gergen. Uh, anyway, back to what I'm saying about Russia collusion and all this other stuff. You see, how I, I, I think it's important because now there's a bit of desperation. In the now there's a bit of a, a panic because he doesn't he's not going to fire Mueller. And as i was saying, it's not a good idea to fire Mueller. Why would he do it? And Mueller's tactics are also showing us there is a little bit of a desperation. Our friend Andy McCarthy writing about this over at National Review, the latest dust up has to do with seizing emails, the Mueller probe, right? Mueller's investigative team of super G-men. Uh, they grabbed all these transition emails, thousands and thousands and thousands of transition emails. Now, do they have the legal right to subpoena these emails? Sure, all that is true. But do they have to go about it in this way? As Andy points out, no, they did not. Mueller's sending a message. He's being as hard-nosed and and clear about his intentions to show zero respect to the administration as he possibly can. This is also like the completely unnecessary pre-dawn raid of Paul Manafort's house. Is Manafort doing some scummy business before he joins the Trump team? Probably. I don't know. We'll see. Manafort's denying the charges and going to fight it. We'll see. I haven't heard anything new thrown at Manafort, I should note. No tax evasion charges, just some lower level stuff. But do they have to do a pre-dawn raid like they're going into a drug kingpin's house and, you know, maybe he's got some M-16 stashed in the ceiling? You know, I mean, come on. It's crazy. But Mueller's been doing that all along. They needed to, I, I think this week, they wanted to prod the administration into doing something rash. They didn't have to do this. There was no reason for them to seize those transition emails. And I would note a lot of political strategy, a lot of internal deliberations in the transition now have found their way to this Mueller team. That stuff could get leaked out. That's that's great. That's great fodder for Democrats really want to know what Trump's strategy was and what the thinking was. And it could just be embarrassment stuff, too. Right. What did one Trump official say about another Trump official Before he knew that he was actually going to be working with him. Well, that would be in the transition emails. Again, a treasure trove of opposition research. He's now in the hands of a bunch of very clear Democrats. Mueller is Comey's buddy. Comey, the whole fiction of Comey as like the most honest government servant in America. I mean, anyone who believes that now, I've got phenomenal beachfront property to sell them in Oklahoma. So it's crazy. It's crazy. But here we are. Um, I I would note that uh, on CNN, I mentioned to you that, uh, earlier today that you had the former DNI. Well, do we have that? Do we have that here. This is the former. He's speaking to Jim Shuto, who is, a, look, he's a Democrat. He thinks he thinks he's just a journalist. He's a Democrat. It's fine. And, you know, he can he can be a pleasant enough guy when he chooses to be. Uh, some of you may have seen our occasional back and forths on Twitter. Uh, it refuses to debate me on any of these issues, but the, the problem with a lot of these talking heads on these on the networks at CNN and MSNBC is they'll just always say that they won't get cleared to come on a show like this because they got to protect their their lightweights. That's just the truth, and the best way to protect them is just to have a policy of oh no, no, you can't go on a show like that and and debate. You know, it reminds me of uh, Smirkanish over at CNN. I've, I've always said, I'll, I'll do a show. I'm just not going to do a show where he gets to have a guest on and pretend to be a moderator when he's just going to ambush me. It'll be me and him. We'll, we'll see who comes out the better on, on the debate. Right? No, won't. Ha- ask me on, but won't have me on unless it's somebody else, too, you know? Hey, hey, Buck, be quiet for a second. Let's let the Democrat uh, s- smear everything you just said, and we called it sliming in debate when you wouldn't let somebody respond, and you just keep throwing stuff at them at the end when they can't respond. And, you know, and then he'll throw on some talking points, too. It's just nonsense, right? But Shudo's over at CNN. He's allowed to be a Democrat resistance fighter on air, and that's what he is. Fine. He's talking to the former director of national intelligence, though, who's supposed to be a nonpartisan professional. And here's what he had to say.
0: Uh, This past weekend is illustrative of uh, what a great case officer uh, Vladimir Putin is. He knows how to handle uh, an asset, and that's what he's doing with the president. Uh, You're saying that Russia is handling President well, Trump as an asset? That's the, That seems to be the, that's the appearance to me. Uh, so, you know, we've shared intelligence with the Russians uh, for a long time. We've, we've always done that. All of my experience with him has been pretty much of a one-way street.
2: This is a slander. Right, by saying that he's handling him like an asset, what he's saying is that in intelligence jargon that Trump is being he's being treated by Putin as though he were an agent of Russia. Oh, I I wonder what that's supposed to mean. Right. He's saying it without really saying it. I mean, it's almost like preterizio. It's almost uh, a rhetorical device being employed by our former DNI, who I find deeply unimpressive. I've never heard him say anything of analytic value I've just heard him say a lot of Democrat talking points and he loves to go on TV and they love him over at CNN. But I would note that what he's talking about is Putin said that we shared information with the Russians that prevented a terrorist attack. And and for those who don't know or don't remember, Russia has suffered horrific jihadist terrorist attacks stretching back for decades. We yeah, we we had 9-11, which is the worst of all time. But the Russians have had some attacks that were hundreds, hundreds of casualties in one attack. The Bezlan School Massacre. I I can't even watch documentaries about it because it's so upsetting what happened there. Just jihadist savages gunning down children. I mean, eight-year-olds, five-year-olds, just horrific stuff. Hundreds of them. So Russia suffered some really bad jihad. And... We may have helped prevent a mass casualty attack. This is what we're this is what's being reported in a cathedral in St. Petersburg. And Putin says, thanks, America. Are are, are we really just supposed to think that everything that Russia says and does is terrible and evil and bad all the time? This is this is where we are now, right? Everything is bad. They're like, hey, high five. Thanks for stopping a cathedral from getting shot up by a bunch of jihadist savages and killing everybody inside. And you get people going to see like, oh, he's playing Trump like a fiddle. Or playing them like a fiddle. Uh, you know, he's acting like, he's like a good case officer. What? Well, what is that? Think about the level of crazy here, folks. This is, now we can't even agree with them on that? You know, what do they want us to do with Russia and China? Are we supposed to tell the Chinese, you know, you've been bad on trade, so basically, uh, you know, you better be more fair on trade or else we might just have to go to war with you, right? We don't want to be weak with China. I mean, these people are out of their minds. And Clapper is a clown, an out and out clown now on TV. All right, I'll be right back. What the heck is going on here? People are saying now that Franken is should not step down. I will note that I I thought I, I still think I'm right on this one, but come on, this is getting crazy here. Are you Tyrone? You were with me on this on day one. You, you think he's still stepping down? You got senators saying he shouldn't step down now.
5: I, I believe the female senators are going to push him out. But I'm not as sure as I was.
2: I'm not, I, how, I mean, I can't be as sure as I was. Amy, what's your vote on this one? Is he stepping down? I can't hear you, but it's all right. She, she's just giving me thumbs up, thumbs down. Thumbs up means he steps down, thumbs down means he doesn't. She's going, th- you think no? Oh my, Amy says no. Wow. I Look, I will note that some of you, when I, I was like, there's no way, but, but, The big variable in all this was Roy Moore. If Roy Moore won, then the Democrats were going to say, see, Al Franken stepped down, but Roy Moore is now in office, and it was going to be this moral high ground thing for them, right? But because Roy Moore lost, now they're like, that high ground? We don't need that anymore. Maybe. That would at least be the theory. I still think he's going, but I'm not as sure as I was.
5: Does Roy Moore realize that he lost yet? Oh, that's a good point.
2: Has he conceded? I didn't even check over the weekend. He has not conceded yet. Wow, this is this is—he's going to be like one of those guys they find on the islands in the Pacific, like ten years after World War II ended, right? Like you know, from the other side, who still thinks we're fighting. It's like, nah, no, nah, it's we're buddies now. It's cool. The war's long since over, right? Uh-oh, I think that's actually an urban legend. I don't think they actually ever found people like that, but people always talk about that. You know, guys. Japanese imperialist army that they'd find on the islands like many, many years later. I should check into that, actually. Whether that ever actually happened or not, people would refer to it. But Roy Moore is uh, still, in, still in it in his mind. Okay. But nonetheless, Franken is if, – if here's what I would say. If Franken does not step down, it will forever change the way that we would have to view the whole apology resignation statement – Because it'll just mean that now the door is open for that as a tool to ride out a news cycle. So that'll be another step on the, you know, another step in the process. It used to be that, you know, you you weather the storm as much as you can as a politician or a media figure or whatever. But if you finally say, I'm out, you know, that's that's the last step, right? That's the final stage. Now there would be one more stage, which is I'm out. And then let's see how this goes. (laughs) Then let's see what people focus on. See, I will, in my defense on this one, and I'm not wrong yet, but I'm a little worried and I hate being wrong. Uh, I will say that when he, uh, and I'm, I'm on Twitter at least officially with this saying it, uh, that when Franken wa- announced that he was going to make a statement, I was like, he's waiting to see, like this is a game time decision, right? That there was a chance all along that he was just going to say, even a couple of days before that when he finally came to the statement it was going to be well I'm sorry but I'm staying but the pressure of the day of was just too much and he finally had to he had to capitulate but if that was true then I guess you have to leave open the possibility that it was not a not a I don't know, he's named his replacement he's got to be gone look at these democrats these shameless shameless democrat senators who are like, he should stay. It's fine. We got Manchin. Who else is on here? I have a whole list of them. Joe Manchin says don't resign. There's some others. I'll find out who they are. But you know what, team? It's it's one of my ironclad rules. Never trust a Democrat politician. So there's this horrific train derailment in Washington State. Um, I we're, We've been watching it to see if we get any more information over the course of the show coming in. And, and for those who just want some of the the basic facts of this uh, it, it was in Washington it was um, seven killed and over seventy wounded. Uh, it was an Amtrak train, and it derailed earlier today, Monday morning. It was its first trip taking what was supposed to be essentially a shortcut route, right? This was its first actual time transporting people on that shortcut route. And uh, here is the Amtrak conductor's transmission of the derailment.
1: Hey, guys, what happened?
2: Uh, We were coming around the corner to take the bridge over I-5 there, uh, right north into Squally, and we went on the ground. Okay, are you, um, is everybody okay? I'm still figuring that out. We got cars
0: everywhere and
3: down onto the highway.
0: Okay, copy that, uh.
2: And uh, here's the here's the drive here's a driver by the way, uh, who was on because if you haven't seen this, I mean the the footage the news media was on it all day. The train goes off at a bridge that is right over a highway, and what was it? Seven cars on the train derailed, which is unusual. Uh, as a, as I'm sorry, how many cars? Thirteen cars. Thank you, Tyrone. Thirteen cars derailed, which is it's like a you know people talk about a derailment. It sometimes is. Much, uh, you know, it's, it's a car or two or 13 cars. That's like the, a big portion of the whole train came off this bridge and smashed into a, uh, a highway. Um, and here is what a, a driver on that highway said it looked like when he saw it.
3: We suddenly had to go from our sixty miles an hour down to zero as fast as possible. So we were all avoiding one another, trying not to, have, to uh, have a collision there. And then um, after we came to a stop, we looked up to see why we had to do that, and all you saw was smoke, and, and um, there's a you know the passenger train hanging from the overpass and, and on the freeway. So very scary stuff.
2: Uh, and we had a passenger speaking earlier today about what he saw uh, when the train after the train had derailed obviously pandemonium carnage it was it was a terrible scene here's what he said about it
3: we're on the portion of the train that, that went down the embankment but then there are are several other cars that seem to have, have piled up and and been torn apart at, at the, the on top of the the rail overpass chris what types of injuries did you see um uh, cuts uh, um, uh people bleeding uh I, I did see. I did see one person who was laying on the ground and was not moving.
2: As we know, seven were killed. Many people uh, over seventy rushed to area hospitals in in Washington. And there was a con- the, a press conference earlier today with the NTSB. I don't even do we even have any sound in it. We don't need it because they didn't say do we have something on it. Yeah, we don't need to. There was really nothing said at that press conference. I watched it live. We pulled some audio here for you, but there's really nothing to. That they didn't have much. And here's the early thinking on this, uh, that according to Russell Quimby, who is a consultant who was an in, uh, investigator in charge for the National Transportation Safety Board, uh, this was likely caused by speed, going too fast around a turn, and the track looked undisturbed. And so it was unlikely to him, this was earlier in the day, to Russell Quimby, who's an NTSB investigator, had been an NTSB investigator that something knocked the train off the track. I had seen some reporting that maybe something was on the track and that's why the train uh, train came off the uh, came off the tracks. But it looks like it was just going too fast. It was going 81 miles an hour right before the derailment, and that the ma- maximum speed for that part of track is 79 miles per hour. But I'm guessing that's way that's way too fast when you weight it down and include people and everything else in this calculation. Although I don't know. Um, I, you know, this has been a big news story today. Uh, we, we reached out to some reporters on the ground in, in Washington, haven't, haven't been able to get them on the line yet. If we do over the course of the show, I will uh, certainly put them on air. But not much not much that I can analyze or say about this other than it looks to me just like a terrible accident. Uh, you, you might see some discussion of infrastructure come out of this. Uh, tracks need to be upgraded. Trains need to be upgraded. Uh, Amtrak is a, a, a very much underperforming for what it could be as a as a uh, as an entity uh, in general. And there have been some. Where was were, what was the crash that happened where the the third rail came? That was Metro North, right? It was a Metro North train a couple of years ago. Where Metro North is here in New York City, it takes you into a whole bunch of places in the tri-state area. Uh, it's not Amtrak, but there was a. Uh, a track the third rail which is electrified is used for part of Metro North and it actually came through a car i think it actually cut someone in half and killed a, a couple of people
5: yes and last year there was also one right outside of Philadelphia where a guy it derailed going too fast along a turn and it turned out he was on his phone
2: oh right i remember right. that i remember that that's right he was he was texting and driving basically right but he was driving a train yeah the the derailment that happened on the Metro North train uh I I remember it because a a guy who was hailed as a hero was the uh, brother of a young woman that I had worked with at the Blaze, and she told me the story in 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 some considerable and and uh, and pretty gruesome detail, which is that her brother had this was the Metro North derailment again. I, I'm just thinking about ways to bring you some takeaways from a trail derailment. Oh, sorry, we've got at least. 3 people dead. Now, wait, no, that's not right. This is what CNN's saying as I'm on air, but 100 injured. What do we know if it's 7 or 3 that were killed? I mean, this is a, a it's figure been they mixed, should, a different report different, different reports, reports different still on this?
5: Gosh. I think it's because families have to be notified. Okay. So I think 3 means definitely passed away, definitely have notified loved ones.
2: Okay. All right. That would, that would yeah, there have been there have been conflicting reports all day. Anyway, on to the, this from a few years ago, because I know more about that crash, because there was the whole investigation into it. So this guy, uh, the third rail came through the center of the car, came up into the car, I forget what happened exactly, it cut somebody essentially in half, and then it lit the car on fire, and this one guy grabbed a door as the train car was in flames, and almost burned his hands off, had third degree burns on his hands, but there was snow outside, and he had the frame of mind to uh, bury his hands, of course, right away in the snow, which probably saved his hands. Both his hands actually still functioning. You know, he had to wear uh, gloves, I think, for like six months, and they had to take him to an extreme burn unit. Uh, but he, they say he's, he's likely saved lives on that train because the train car was on fire. People couldn't get out. The door was in flames when he grabbed it. That's why he almost burned his hands off. He was also happened to be near for whatever reason, I mean, just by an accident of fate, was near a World class burn center, and they were able to get him there very quickly. My, this is again my friend's brother, who almost lost his hands in that derailment. Uh, so yeah, I I don't have much uh, of in the way of analysis on this other than just we're we're watching it closely and different reports on the number of people killed. You've I'm sure many of you have likely seen the photos and uh, news newsreel footage of of this derailment. Like I said, there might be a discussion about infrastructure. You also had that blackout at Atlanta airport over the weekend, which is a major story in terms of the impact and makes people feel like what the heck is, how can a whole airport lose power like that? Right. People are stuck in planes for hours and they got no answers really. Right. Not yet. I think they said there's an electrical fire, but how that could knock out power in the whole place. And there's not a, a backup power system, a backup generator. You would think an airport would be prepared for this kind of thing, but and Atlanta airport's the busiest airport in the world. So it's been a, a few days here where you might have some discussion about infrastructure and need to upgrade these things. And, and you know, when you talk about infrastructure, it can sound a little bit boring. And but at some level, lives are at stake, right? We're talking about tracks and bridges, and maybe the Trump administration will see this as a moment where they're going to have to refocus our attention on this. And then, just as a as a as an aside, that's a way lesser story. I but I just it reminds me of this. I was on a Metro North train. That came very close to derailing. I a I remember this very well. I was on the way up to visit my grandparents in upstate New York, and I was lying. It was a car with very few people in it, and I was lying down. And all of a sudden, you heard this terrible bang, it sounded almost like an. I mean, I didn't know much about explosives at the time. I was very. I was young. I was maybe. I think I was in my teenage teenage years. And uh, a car had run into the train, actually had jumped the, you know, the track when you have the, uh, you know, the track is cut off from traffic and a car that apparently had been trying to uh, evade the police was running from the cops for whatever reason and it ran into the side of the train going, you know, 50 or 60 miles an hour Uh, and uh, there was not much, I remember getting out of the, the train afterwards, there was not much of that car left, I don't even know what happened to the driver. Uh, but I do remember that train car going 40 or 50 miles an hour, or whatever it was, going, tilting all the way to one side and all the way to the other. As uh, not a feeling I'll ever forget. Um, nobody was injured other than I think, I don't know if the driver made it. I think the driver might have been, I think he might have been gone, but I don't know. Uh, we had to wait a long time for them to figure out how to get us off, you know, get us off the tracks and what had happened. So look train travel I think is probably the safest way that you can actually go anywhere but nothing is per I mean anytime you're you're moving at speed stuff can happen um, anyway so if we have anything else for you on this Washington train derailment we'll bring it to you but for now it just looks like going too fast terrible tragedy and if there's more we'll let you know uh, we'll be back I got actually some breaking news on the whole Russia Trump collusion FBI thing that just came in while I was on air. We'll hit that after. Stay with me, Doctor Rick in Maryland wants to chat. What's up, Doctor Rick? Well, hey, shield tie, buck shield tie. What's up, man?
3: Well, I tell you, you know, you were talking about, you know, the what, what just happened, the derailment, and in terms of the Atlanta Airport, and maybe this says something about where my mind goes. But if, if our infrastructure is this fragile. It makes me wonder if someone with some ill uh, intent, like a terrorist, could certainly disrupt things rather easily in a low-tech manner. And I was wondering your thoughts on
2: it. So you want to know if I'm concerned that terrorists might target rail systems specifically?
3: Rail systems or, you know, if a fire fire really can darken the entire airport. Or I think a couple years ago they were talking about um, the guy who did Freakonomics on his website, talked about how it'd be easy to disrupt things in California with fires, and he got into a lot of trouble with that. Talking about, you know, we don't need to be concerned about high-tech things, that they can do actually some pretty low-tech things that could be rather... It's, I mean, it's amazing that more that we haven't gone through more, um, um, you know, trauma. Yeah, well, I, we I think it
2: is... It is uh, it's surprising to me sometimes that terrorists, uh, that jihadists make the choices that they do, Given that, generally speaking, their goal is just mass casualties, right? Although there is a symbol, there is symbolism in it as well. So sometimes they'll pick a target because of what the target will mean to us psychologically, more so than just going for body count. Uh, but then the the part of it that I find sometimes a little surprising and even confusing would, be, or not really confusing, but I'm a little, you know, you guys really aren't very uh, aren't thinking this thing through will be that they'll say, well, you know, if, if I'm going to go with a martyrdom operation, I want it to be an explosion, not a shootout. Or, uh, you know, I, I don't want it to, you know what I mean? That that, that that they actually pick the attack based on how it will be viewed by those in jihadist circles once they're gone. You know, it's kind of a glory thing in their minds. It's, it's crazy, but that's how they think. This is why these guys try to build really big bombs who don't know how to build bombs. If they just wanted to kill yeah, people, we, get a truck, and you know, we've seen them do that too, right? But they'll still sometimes oh yeah. pick the bomb. As for trains, yeah, train derailment is would, I would think, not be that hard to pull off. No. Um, and I don't have a good answer to, uh, for you as to why they haven't attacked rail systems more. I would note there's a movie coming out in, uh, I think it's actually next month, about the attempt to uh, the ISIS-aligned uh, terrorist who wanted to walk up and down a high-speed train in Europe— with an AK-47, and it was a couple of American yeah. servicemen, right, who were on vacation, who stopped him. So they have gone after uh, trains, and they've certainly gone after subways in Madrid and and and, and a bunch of places around the world. Um, but Amtrak trains, look, I don't, I feel weird even talking about it because, yeah, they're they're a big, fat, easy target. And up to this point, right. I can't think of. Am I missing anything with it? I, I can't think of an Amtrak specific plot. That has been disrupted, although there are so many plots, I might be missing one.
3: Well, I know I had some friends after 9-11 who worked for um, several of the agencies who were petrified because they could not locate one chlorine truck. And I won't get into specifics. You may have heard of it, but they were petrified of what they could do with that.
2: Yeah, I mean, chlorine so, bombs, they use them in Iraq. Uh, they would have trucks with chlorine. they blow them up to create a kind of uh, you know low-yield chemical... Uh, chemical weapon attack. Yeah. It's not actually, it, it's, I mean, th- thankfully, it's not actually a very effective way to, to do it usually. I mean, it, it dissipates quickly and you, you burn up a lot of it yeah. in the explosion. Um, But obviously. They were,
3: they were kind of worried about intake at, at certain facilities. And, well, right. I mean, and
2: people have been worried about. You know, po- <laughs> you know, we're going to, we're going to a very dark place here. We're talking about all yeah, the different ways. That. That, no, <laughs> yeah, it's okay, no. Dr. Rick. But, you know, there's a lot of ways that terrorists have thought about or have yeah. planned to. To hit us in the past, and look, infrastructure is a huge target. Uh, infrastructure gets our attention, and it's very tough to uh, fully protect. But there are at least some security measures in place. You know, if you go to uh, and Dr. Rick Shields, and Merry Christmas! Thank you for calling in. You know, if you go to uh, Penn Station here in New York City, uh, there's a lot. I mean, there's a lot of uniformed and I mean, a lot of non you know uh, plain clothes officers and the guy standing around with M4s, I mean, there's, there's security in place. That doesn't mean that they can handle everything and stop everything, but it's not a totally soft target. Uh, and on those trains, I don't know what the specific security, and it's probably a good thing because I worry about it even more if I was read into what they're doing to make sure that trains aren't hit by terrorists. But uh, I, I don't know what they have in place. Um, I know. There are some days where I'm like, maybe I should tell everybody if I were a terrorist trying to hurt America, here's what I do. And then I realize, no, 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 I don't want to put all that stuff out there because that would that's uh, especially with ha- having seen a lot of the uh, threat reporting, as well as an under having a, an insider understanding of vulnerabilities of different facilities and things. You know, you gotta gotta draw a line between surmising and then. Given the other side help, which I would obviously never ever ever under any circumstances want to do um even theorizing so you know that's this is why it's it's a tough it's a tough call, but anyway i don't I don't think there's that was all theoretical in terms of the possibility of terror this this is a a train derailment because a guy was going too fast from what we know right now I mean there's no reason to believe it's anything other than that. maybe there was some foreign debris or something on the tracks, but you know it uh we haven't gotten any confirmation of that. And I, I think that, understandably, in the first 24 hours of an incident like this, a huge uh, proportion of the energy and resources is just a life-saving activity, right? Get everybody to the hospitals, get everybody patched up, and then deal with the families of, of the, the victims as well, those who have been killed. I mean, that's that's priority number one by a, by a mile, uh, unless there's some reason to believe that there was a that this was foul play, and that you want to track down who's. But we don't see any of that right now. So uh, anyway, um, I wanted to tell you about this. It's a Wall Street Journal piece that's trying to answer the question about Strux. Remember uh, this guy struck in the FBI? His text about the insurance. There's a report now that says that it an- that their source is answering that. Here's what I'll tell you. I'm not sure I buy it. know uh, the explanation I was trying to talk to the team here. and... I'm not buying it, so let me tell you what it is. Stay through the break, and uh, we'll get into it. All right, so I'm going to take you into the latest story surrounding the whole sex, harassment, sex abuse scandal in, in just a few moments here. And then uh, Ty and I are going to talk about some NFL stuff, and also I'm going to share with you some Christmas cheer or Christmas spirit, probably better way to put it. And then we'll do some Team Buck Speaks, which maybe we'll come up with a new name for. I'll tell you about that later. Uh, so we got a lot planned this hour, but I, I mentioned to you, and I don't like to do the whole "oh, I'm going to tease something" and then not talk about it. This story in the wall that the, the Hill has picked up, and it's in in the it's citing Wall Street Journal reporting. So here's what the Journal says: In FBI agent's account insurance policy text referred to the Russia probe. Okay, so this is noteworthy. Okay, Wall Street Journal here reporting that that FBI agent struck. When he talked about the insurance policy, it was the Russia probe. That is, in fact, what was being discussed with another senior FBI person. And it was an Andrew uh, McCabe, the FBI director. Is it Andrew McCabe? Andy McCabe, right? Isn't that right? Yeah. Andy, Andrew, whatever. In Andy McCabe's office. So all that is now confirmed. So those of us who are like, oh, that sounds like he's talking about the Russia probe. And it sounds like he was in the FBI acting director's office. Yup. And yup, according to this Wall Street Journal reporting. But now the sources that they cite here uh, are saying the following. Um, Let me just reread to you what the text says, then I'll give you the rest. This is what Strzok wrote. I want to believe the path you threw out for consideration in Andy's office, that there's no way he gets elected, but I'm afraid we can't take that risk. It's like an insurance policy in the the unlikely event you die before you're 40. Now, they are saying, quote, This text was meant to convey his belief that the investigation couldn't afford to take a more measured approach because Mr. Trump could very well win the election, according to sources. It would be better to be aggressive and gather evidence quickly, he believed, because some of Trump's associates could land administration jobs, and it was important to know if they had colluded with Russia, end quote. I don't buy this. That doesn't wash. doesn't make sense to me. These are people who clearly reached out to the journal. I'm guessing high-level people in the FBI. The journal's vetted at some level. And they're saying, oh, no. Strzok meant the insurance policy was that... They needed to go hard on the investigation because they needed to know the truth before Trump maybe won. Um, that's an interesting version of events. First of all, at this point in time, uh, that we're talking about that text message exchange and what was it, the 26 August of 2016? Uh, very few people thought Trump was going to win. Like, nobody thought Trump was going to win. The the New York Times had, like, a 97% chance that Hillary was going to win. So this whole, oh, yeah, this FBI agent could see into the future and was really worried about Trump winning. Um, So they need to do the investigation much faster to know before. Think about what this would mean. So so they had to go into this investigation with everything they had so that in case Trump won, they would already know if he had colluded with Russia. Or was it they were going to find this out before the election so they could throw the election against Trump? I just this this explanation doesn't make sense to me in context. Uh, We know it was but but this is what's important. We know they were texting about the Russia collusion investigation and we know they had some conversation in the acting FBI director's office about the insurance policy. So the insurance policy was that they would investigate as quickly and efficiently as they could the Russia collusion story in August of 2016, a couple months before the election votes were cast, in case Trump won. Because then what? Then they would know the truth, and they would do what? But they, I, I you know, maybe I'm just I'm trying to wrestle with it. It doesn't, eh? Sounds a little convenient to me. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not saying. I'm not saying. I buy it. Uh, I'm not willing to buy. I'm not willing to sign off on this as the explanation just yet. Uh, especially, so you think Trump is going to win, and so you want to really do this now. You want, or you think Trump might win, so you're going to push. So the think about it, the insurance. I'm sorry. I know I'm kind of the insurance policy is you do a lot so you find out Trump colluded with Russia before the election, so that if Trump wins the election. You'll know before. How is that? an Tyrone, what is that an insurance policy against? The truth
5: not being known? That doesn't sound like insurance to me. It doesn't make sense. And no one, like you said, no one thought Trump was going to win. I'm not sure Trump knew he was going to (laughs) win. I mean, yeah, but but that's what i
2: to call it insurance doesn't make sense to me because, you know, insurance is preparation for a bad for, you know, a, a bad and foreseeable outcome. And I don't understand how. Rushing the Russia investigation before the election is, is an insurance policy. It, it's the, the only way to me it's insurance is we find out as much as we can now in case Trump wins so that we can use this against him. But then you've got the whole, OK, so do they really think this is happening or do they want to get as much as they can together now so that they can drop it during the transition, which did happen, to smear the Trump team and make life hard for them?
5: I think that's the only explanation. It doesn't make sense. I'm surprised that they're, they're kind of insulting us by putting that one, that version out
2: there. Yeah. I don't, I don't buy that. So, okay, everybody. I'm just, I wanted to say, I'm, that is suspect. And I'm glad Tyrone sees that it is also suspicious. All right. So a couple of notes here. One on, on so we're switching gears, but I told you I'd tell you about that. That's the big headline, the breaking news that's out there about the Russia stuff. So on the sex scandals that are out there, sexual harassment scandals, all that stuff. Uh, as some other conservatives have, I know, I've been warning you about my concern that this would be uh, weaponized, it would go too far. And, uh, and then there's also the, the component of this that might come to light, which is that there are women who are harassed, there are women who were abused, or women who were assaulted. And it's all to the good that that's coming out now and that people are finally getting some measure of justice. But what do we make of those who advanced what do we make of the situations when people have advanced their careers by uh, deciding that they would engage in sexual conduct with the boss or the decision maker well I this came up in the context of uh, Ian McKellen who you probably know uh, best from being Gandalf in the Lord of the Rings trilogy which I will say I like the Lord of the Rings trilogy very much and uh, and a total side note, you know Samwise. Uh, what's his real name? And what's the? He's from Rudy, right? That guy. He had a podcast for a little while, and he thought I was smart, so he had me on his podcast to talk foreign policy. I don't know if he still does that, but I was just so because I, I love Lord of the Rings so much. I'm like, yeah, I'll do Samwise's podcast, whatever his name is in real life. I forget, but nice guy, by the way, very nice. He's like, you know more than me, so tell me about foreign policy. He just wanted to learn stuff. Anyway, anyway, he was he was nice, and I was just like, Frodo. Mr. Frodo, the whole thing. I didn't say that to him. He would not have thought that was funny. Uh, But Ian McKellen, back to what I'm actually talking about. Ian McKellen has spoken out about the sex scandal, and here's uh, what he here's the headline. This is from Ian McKellen. You direct your you know your Twitter ire or, or emails or whatever at him. He writes, "Quote: Women are partly to blame for showbiz sex scandal," says Sir Ian McKellen. Star claims some actresses tell directors they will sleep with them to win roles. And here's what uh, McKellen went on to say. I hope we're going through a period that will help eradicate it altogether. But from my own experience, when I was working as an actor in the early 60s, uh, the director of the theater I was working at showed me some photographs he got from women who were wanting jobs. Uh some of them had at the bottom of their photograph DRR, director's rights respected. In other words, if you give me a job, you can have sex with me. End quote. Whoa. Ian McKellen stepping stepping into it here. Gandalf. He is uh he is squaring off against the Balrog on this one. He better watch himself. He's gonna get what
5: do you think, Ty? I like it. I think he'll I think <laughs> he has like dispensation. It?
2: Yeah, I mean, look—it's a whole other part of the conversation that that does not has not been brought into it yet. And Ian McKellen um, is is stirring up the—he's uh, stirring up the hornet's nest a little here with this. I've been telling you at, at some point it would come out, and this is the first time I've seen it. So I just wanted to note that—that that, you know, Gandalf is Gandalf the Grey is like, hey, what about the fact that there are women who—and keep in mind that means that there are other women who don't get those jobs. How do we? How do we as a society? Deal with that reality when we see it and how we see it, and and how do businesses, corporations, media, Hollywood, how do they all handle that part of all this? So I'm just just putting it out there. I'm just you know if Gandalf says it, I feel like I could share it with you. And uh, that's so. There's that, and we'll be back with some NFL talk. Stay right there. Let's switch gears for a moment, team, from all the latest in national security and politics to uh, some happenings in the NFL. I was trying to do prep for this week in the news cycle and looking around at what's going on and there was so much chatter about the nfl over the weekend and in particular the possibility of the carolina panthers getting sold i even saw formerly known as p diddy now known as sean combs which was his original name saying he wants to buy the panthers it's kind of a crazy thing i want to know what's going on here tyrone explain it to me my friend
5: so um, they officially will be sold. That that's been. Well, oh, that's happening. Okay. That's happening. The the Diddy part, the Sean Combs part. I do not. I'll believe it when it when it happens. It, I don't think it's going to happen. That's the sizzle. The stake is, Jerry Richardson was a bad boy. Um, uh oh. So there's there's a two pronged thing. The thing that finally, and also sensibilities have changed. We have to realize this is a new world because in hindsight, he probably should not have been able to buy the team in the first place. So. The reason he's out is um, multiple. he had done multiple settlements of uh, sexual harassment in the workplace, and he was still apparently continuing. Now, he had a female COO. It wasn't that he was the devil. It's just that when he was inappropriate, he was particularly inappropriate. He was even asking current staff if he could shave their legs. Uh, weird on so many levels,
2: and, and one of those levels is, don't understand why that would be fun for anybody, but nonetheless.
5: That, that was among his many things. The, another thing that he did was he, years ago though, the reason I say he should not have, perhaps would not have been able to own a team now is, he owned a chain of Denny's back in the day, and you know Denny's had their issues, and he had hired a female manager, and that's great, and he went to the female manager, and this is all in a Sports Illustrated piece, is which led to, and I'll get into the investigation in just one second, in which he told the uh, African American female manager that she had too many monkeys working at the Denny's. Ah, uh, wow. That was in the 90s. Now, he, the team came into existence in 1995. Since then, there Wait, was... Wait, was that known when he was... So when was that known versus when
0: did
2: he take over, that, take the team? That
5: was kind of known in the 90s. Oh, my God. And it was like, hey, he's... Th- and, and to his defense, this is the thing about him. He has hired and put a lot of prominent African Americans in different positions and things like that. He has. It's kind of like this bipolar activity by him where he does something good. And he does something bad. But in today's environment, there's no way that that bad would not have ruled the day if he was trying to buy a team right now. Now, the reason he's selling the team, step one was uh, Sports Illustrated started digging because there was all these non-disclosure agreements that were given to these women signed a bunch of non-disclosure. And they were just saying, hey, what's that about? So initially, the the Panthers said, we're going to do an internal investigation of the team owner. So, what what does that mean? How do you investigate your boss internally? Then it was the NFL's going to investigate. Yeah, right. Well, the NFL has a obviously a rooting interest. That he's the third most powerful owner behind Jerry Jones of the Cowboys and Robert Kraft of the Patriots. Wait, why
2: is that? Are the Panthers such an important franchise?
5: Um, He's a self-made billionaire, and he just positioned himself. He bought the team at the right time, and he just wields a lot of power in that room. He was one of the people who kind of destroyed the players in the last collective bargaining agreement, which has led to a lot of trouble. But he was very powerful in that room about beating up the players and getting everything we want because he said so. He just had a lot of power in that room, and and now he's out. But then after the league, they said investigate. The people said, you know what? Sports Illustrated ran the story, and now it's like, yeah, we're, we're selling the team. So
2: who are they going to sell it to? Who are the likely buyers
5: or possible buyers? Well, well, here's the thing: the day. Of I mean, a, I kind of want P. Diddy to buy it. It would be. That's <laughs> what everyone wants. That would be. A, that would and, be amazing. And if you look at it, it's probably going to sell for probably a billion and a half. Oh my gosh! NFL. Right. So the day of somebody like him or like Jerry Jones, who started business and made a, a nice salary, you know, made you know fifty million, borrowed the rest and buy a team. That's over. But yeah, NFL
2: teams are like the original Bitcoin, man. If you could have gotten in a long time ago, you made a ton of money.
5: I think Jerry Jones, I think, bought the team for, I know it was under $50 million and it's worth $2 billion now.
2: It's now. Good investment.
5: <laughs> You're telling me. So I, the issue is, but Diddy does himself worth over $500 million. So it's not crazy that he could put together a, a group and buy it. The problem is that the owners have final say on who gets to buy it, and they won't let them.
2: Why not? Wouldn't it send a really powerful message, especially given a lot of the dynamics that you and I talk about here on the show about the way the players feel about owners? Is there an African American owner of an
5: NFL team right now?
2: No, or even majority owner of a team?
5: No, there. No, he would be the. He would possibly be the first one. And there's only one minority owner. Period, and that's uh, a He owns the Jacksonville Jaguars, and he had generations of oil money, and they didn't know about him. Had they known about him now, because he tends to be a little more liberal. He actually sides with the players. They wouldn't have let him buy the team. Those owners hate dissension at all costs, and they don't care about how things look. They hate dissension. You either get on board or you get out. So is some of that stuff from
2: the show uh, Ballers, which I have watched on HBO, about the the
5: owners are kind of like a, a country club that doesn't call itself that? I get the sense it's true. It's absolutely true, and the things and it's amazing the things that they'll let slide Versus the things they won't let slide. For example, the, the owner of the Cleveland Browns. He admitted under oath that he discriminated against people and that he told people in investigations. That if he owns um, some large uh, travel company. He told his employees to like lie to other lie to the to the customers like he admitted under oath. They just said, sure, you own the team. We'll slide. They don't care about that. But did he would actually say, hey, Maybe we should do this or maybe entertainment value beyond what we say and maybe having figuring out how to do a first down because every other sport uses lasers and things like that. And we still have a guy with a piece of paper walking up to think stuff like that. They don't like that kind of stuff. They don't like ideas. They rule the roots and you're supposed to listen to Jerry uh, Jones. You're supposed to listen to Robert Kraft and you were supposed to listen to Jerry Richardson, but he's going to be out.
2: One more for you, Tyrone, and it's just from, from a kind of outsider perspective. I have, I've watched less football this year than I've watched in at least a decade, but my sense is that a lot of the, the stories off the field kind of overshadowed a lot of the stories on the field this year, meaning play. I don't mean the kneeling. I mean everything other than play seemed to get more attention in the NFL than the actual throwing of footballs and tackling and all the rest of it.
5: It's amazing that that happened, but it's not a surprise, and you're absolutely right, because the, 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 the owners have valued everything else but the employee. At the end of the day, whether they want to give the players money and, and all that kind of stuff, at the end of the day, if you want people to care about the game, you have to make sure that the players are highlighted, and the players can go out there and they're in the best position to succeed, because that's your product. Your product is not, hey, look at us, we're in London. No, no, no. There's a football game in London. It's not the league. And until, that's why at midfield, they put the NFL shield and not the team logo. Because it's about them. And while they're making the money, that what they have to do is humble themselves going forward. Continue to collect the money, but they must allow their employee base. It would be just like if the boss here at iHeart at Premier, decided that they were more important when the microphone opened than you were. It'd be kind of tough for you to do your job if they told you, hey, you can't do this, you can't do that. Hey, I know it's hard to do three hours of radio. Yeah, you leave for one hour, you come back, you do three hours again. And that's the kind of stuff they've asked the players to do for years, and the players always say, always push back, and the owners always say no, and it's finally kind of caught up to them that the product has to matter. Who's going to be in the Super Bowl this year, Tyrone? Well, unfortunately, as an Eagles fan, my quarterback got hurt, so I don't like our chances. Although we do have the NFL's best record, I'm still going with the Patriots, who was one of my original teams, and I am now going on the, on the NFC side with the Los Angeles Rams.
2: Ooh, all right. I like it. Tyrone, thank you, as always, sir, for, you. uh, for your insights on this issue. Uh, team, when we come back, I'm going to just give you some thoughts on the holiday spirit, and then we'll do some Team Buck speak, so stay with me. Merry Christmas, team. I know it's a few days away still, but it's fun to say, isn't it? I also think it's important to say. I've told you before here on the show that I'm not a big gift giver, uh, just because my family is all uh, grown and we don't have any kids yet. So once that changes, well, then I'm sure I'll be the best present giver, even if I'm just as Uncle Buck giving out presents to kids uh, to my nieces and my nieces and nephews of the future and hopefully to my own children soon enough uh, but i do think that there are some very important uh things to keep in mind of the holiday season and, and i don't i'm not one who's going to sit here and tell you about how oh it's a time for warmth by the fire with loved ones to open your hearths and hearts and, and all that stuff i'll leave that to to the various Christmas movies that do a much better job at that than I ever could, and also the uh, Christmas music that we all listen to, I will say that as much as I would like to think I'm too cool to get excited about Michael, Michael Buble Christmas music, the guy's pretty good. I kind of kind of like what he's putting down or has put down in the past for the Christmas tracks, but I would say that. Based on my own experience with, over the holidays in recent years, Christmas is a great time to reach out. Uh, Christmas is a great time to reconnect. And let me tell you what got me thinking about this today, and then I'll tell you why. Uh, there's this piece in the Washington Post today about how loneliness can damage your health. In fact, there's a lot of research now, that points to feelings, just, this, just the perception, the feeling of loneliness that anyone can have can lead to very serious uh, physiological symptoms, greater inflammation in the body, neurological changes in the body. And in research that was presented to the American Psychological Association this past year, there were some researchers who put out there that they believe loneliness is a bigger public health risk than obesity. Now, I can't pretend to understand the uh, specific anatomical implications of loneliness. I can't sit here and tell you that I would have even the first hint of an idea at the specific biological Uh, Functions that would be impaired by loneliness and how that all works and the synapses and all that. But I do know this. Your mental health is very closely correlated with your physical health. And they are really actually one. The notion of mental and physical health as being separate is, I think, a a false dichotomy that how you feel about yourself, your family, your career, uh, your day-to-day existence, your purpose in life does have an impact on how your body is functioning and over the long term i think has some very serious implications for wellness and for how we will all uh, age and i think there's just a lot that medicine needs to research to have a better understanding of all this but here's how it matters over the christmas holiday and you're probably like buck why what's with buck's version of uh, Buck Sexton, the science guy here. Uh, Well, it's because over the holidays, you have a great opportunity to help some people with their loneliness. Um, That may be by volunteering, uh, working at a soup kitchen or involved in any number of charities that help people uh, without families, uh, without those to care for them and to spend some of your time with them. Human beings are very social creatures. Even the most bah humbug, uh, get off my lawn. Among us, we actually do need to be around people. Uh, that doesn't mean huge numbers of people. It doesn't mean all the time. But we do need human contact and positive human contact, right? And so, for people that are in particularly tough situation with regard to their uh, either substance abuse, homelessness. It's a really nice, it's a really wonderful thing to do for those of you who can to go and volunteer or spend some time at a shelter. Uh, but I also know that you've got a lot of family obligations and there's a lot of other things going on. Look, I'm going to be spending time with my family. I'm not going to have time this year uh, because I'll be going away to go to a shelter. But I just do think that it's a I have friends who, who do it and it's a very admirable and, and very uh, Christmas spirit thing to do. But on loneliness as well, just a phone call. You know, I would tell you that in the last few years, I have taken Christmas as an opportunity to reach out to people that I have lost touch with and just want to let them know that I hope everything is cool. I hope they're doing well. And I think there's no better opportunity than this week and next week to... Try to put right a relationship that may have become problematic in the past. If you are estranged from a family member, I think that Christmas is the time when you, you kind of get a an opening. Uh, you have a, a special dispensation from courtesy of Saint Nick and all the reindeer or you know or the birth of Jesus, or whatever it may be, right? You have a time here when, Uh, you can reach out, and you really have a good excuse to do so. And I will say that I've reached out to people that were good friends of mine, um, and some of them were so happy to hear from me. Some of them didn't respond for whatever reason. Uh, We've just lost touch over the years, and maybe they appreciated the message. Maybe they didn't. I didn't hear back from them. But I'm still glad I sent it because in the Christmas spirit, trying to just reach out and let somebody know that you know, you're thinking about them and you wish that person the best and you wish them a a Merry Christmas. It's a really fantastic thing for any of us to do. And I think that it can really help. You know, you just, you never know when you're reaching somebody, you never know how tough the holidays may be for somebody you work with, for that friend that you lost touch with or that you had a fight over something or, or that family member that you just couldn't take anymore and you haven't been talking to. Um, That phone call over Christmas, that text message, that email, even if it's never responded to, it it could really be nice, could really help. Who knows how much? So Merry Christmas is a phenomenal excuse to make sure that if you think there's somebody out there who you just want to reach out to or that maybe is a little lonely and you want to let them know that you're here and you're thinking about them. I think that's what Christmas that if you can do that over this Christmas, you have really uh, made the most of it. So if I could uh, if I could push you all listening to do just one thing, it would be to make that phone call, send that text, send that email to someone that you've lost touch with and just say Merry Christmas. See what happens. All right. We'll do some team buck speaks on the flip side. Stay with me. All right, so now we're in that part of the show when your voices are reflected or read on air. I've noted that some of you would like us to come up with a cooler name than Team Buck Speaks. Maybe you like that. I don't know. I should probably put a poll up on Facebook or something, but I'm open to it. And i like all of you to to know that this show is a collaboration with my Freedom Hut team, me, and, and you, the audience. So whatever, you know, you are Team Buck, so however you think we should brand or, or however you, you, especially those of you who are frequent uh, frequent additions to the Team Buck Speak segment or you, you like to write in, let me know what your preferred version of this segment would be and what we would call it. What's the name? You know, should it be? team buck throws down and you know, i don't know we got to come up with something but i just wanted to put that out there that we are thinking about it in 2018 maybe we'll even come up with a little nifty intro music or something for all of you and because uh, it's it's a really important part of what i do is is reading your thoughts and and responses and criticisms and suggestions and i think a lot of you get a kick out of hearing what the rest of the team thinks so with that in mind send me your thoughts on that at uh, Facebook.com slash Buck or official team at gmail.com. All right, here we go. First of this week is Brian. He writes him the following Buck, Amy, and Tyrone wanted to reach out to say, keep up the great work that you are all doing every day to produce the best talk radio program on the air. All your efforts are making a big difference to a lot of your listeners. Excited to hear of all the new plans you have in store for 2018. I do my best to spread the show to my friends, family, and, of course, through multiple social media outlets. On that note, one idea that could really help build the team listener base would be if you could all start segmenting out some targeted talking points from the show each day. Understood, of course, that the podcasts have to remain their own entity. This is more something to uh, post directly for your website of each day's three or four segments of hot button issues for easy sharing maybe call it a buck blast or similar, and end each segment with a 15-second promo of where to listen to the full show, etc. As an example, our liberal friends are all freaking out over the latest net neutrality changes. You perfectly summarized uh, with your talking points and then the interview with Maggie Reardon last week uh, what the truth is here, and that would make for a great 5-10 to minute quick link to share on social media as a targeted response to the liberal insanity posts. Sure, you have already viewed this op- reviewed this option, and Noah could really help spread the Freedom Hunt. Have a merry Christmas and enjoy some well-deserved time off. Shields High, Brian. Well, Brian, that was a phenomenal and very helpful email. So thank you for that, and we will definitely uh, put that one on the list. Uh, we've got uh, a digital team that helps post things from the show, and I perhaps in 2018 can take a more active role in everything that's going up on BuckSexton.com and on the show sites uh, but uh, yes i like your idea and we will definitely give that some thought i i wanted to do an email list but i'm doing a history podcast that's actually happening i don't want to sit here and whine brian and make excuses about all the reasons why i can't do everything i want to do but a- as it is i feel like i am burning the candle a little bit at both ends with everything i got going on that is one way of saying but you are right I think that would be a really cool idea. So we'll try to put that in motion. Rita writes in with the following. This is all on on, uh, our Gmail account, officialteambuck at gmail.com. There's a chicken producer commercial that says they feed a vegetarian diet to their chickens. However, they are partially free range and have access to grass and the juicy insects living therein. It's all silliness. Eat meat. P.S. I love chickens. They're so funny chasing grasshoppers. (laughs) Okay, thanks, Rita. Uh, You know, great. I mean, yeah, I I like chickens. I told you that my dad had a friend growing up who had a farm in Virginia, a big farm, and I used to love to chase around the little little chicken chicks when I was like eight, you know, and they had to tell me that I was no longer allowed to chase the chickens because I think it affects their egg production if they get stressed out. I just wanted, because the chicks, when you're an eight-year-old, a little fluffy yellow chick that's like, tweet, tweet, is like the cutest thing you've ever seen in your life. So I I was chasing them a lot. Uh, that was that was fun. I also remember at one point they had uh, eight-week-old Pekingese puppies that I got to see and play with, and I'm not a big Pekingese person among the canine options out there. I'm, you know, they're sweet dogs, and they're good companion dogs. Ms. Molly's probably going to convince me to get a Pekinese now. But uh, those eight-week-old puppies, I will never forget that. I think I was eight or nine years old around there, and I played with, I played with those puppies for an afternoon, and it was great. On the farm, again, on the farm. Uh, we also went fishing and shooting and did all that stuff on the farm, too. It was good times. All right, Dave has the following for me here. Shields High Buck. Uh, Tyrone's insights on Amarosa were fantastic. I don't follow celebrities, so know nothing about most. Tyrone's answers to your questions were so succinct, even I understand immediately. Thank you, Tyrone. Perhaps he could discuss understandings of Trump, Cosby, Obama, and Clinton, though I suspect the latter is now irrelevant. Great show, continued success. Sincerely, Dave. Well, Tyrone is a critical part of every show that we're doing here on and off uh, air, and I'm so glad that all of you understand what a tremendous asset he is to the Freedom Hut, and he's as as good a an on-air sports analyst and uh, as anybody out there. So we are very blessed to have him with us here each day. Also running the board, making sure that the the trains run on time in the studio here. Just me, Ty, and Amy, and you know, and Amy's holding down the fort as well, making sure that everything is running smoothly. We've got our guests calling in and making sure we've got the best people joining us on air, running the phones. So we, you know, it, we're a lean, mean operation here in the Freedom Hut. All right, now to some of the Facebook inbox at facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Jake uh, writes in, Hey, Buck, how's it going? Saturday listener here. All right, Jake OSS. Still at it and loving your continued success. Keep at it, brother. What's this I hear of a history show? Is it going to be separate, or will it be part of the daily podcast? I would love some info so I can download it and listen at work. I finally got my T-shirt as well. Been wanting one since the Saturday shows. Shields high. Keep fighting the good fight. Well, Jake, thank you so much. It is a huge compliment to me, and I am honored that you have stayed with me from a Saturday show that was a digital stream on a website through a weekly show to then a... Uh, a show that was simulcast on cable TV as a radio show to now a nationally syndicated show across the country, uh, and it's awesome that I have so many of you that have been with me through all of that. And you know, I like to think that I'm the band that you guys saw playing at the the tiny, you know, dark venue with the good booze some years ago, and, and now I'm playing some arenas, and you're you're right there with me in the front row. So thank you so much. And as to the history show, it. Uh, I will. The history show, if I haven't already told you, is called Shields High. That is the history show. It will be about the great battles that define Western civilization. It will be ma- it'll be along the lines of Lepanto and Malta and some of those historical events we've talked about in the past. And it launches in January. If you are a live listener on the radio now, or you uh, however you're listening, you want to subscribe on iTunes because we're going to put. The Shields High show in the iTunes feed for the show. So you'll be able to listen to it there or on demand on the iHeart app. So you should definitely uh, definitely check it out and subscribe. You can follow on the iHeart app or you can subscribe on iTunes. All right, one more before we close up shop in the hut for the day. Hey, Buck, love the show. Stumbled across you on the Drinking Bros podcast, and now I listen every day. Just curious if you've seen any of the History Channel's new show, Nightfall. I'm a big fan of your Crescent vs. Cross deep dives, and that show deals with a lot of the same subject matter, as well as being a very entertaining show. Definitely worth a watch. Jake, I'm sorry, Jack. Pardon me. Just It's late. I'm tired. I misread it for a second there, Jack. Give me a a mulligan on that. Jack, uh, first of all, thank you for being a a new addition to The Hut. You are uh, most welcome, and it's great to have new people joining all the time. Nightfall sounds like a great show, and I will check it out. I've got to have, I'm going to have some time over the holiday break here to watch shows. Uh, I will also have to wine and dine Miss Molly a bit, of course, but I will be checking out Nightfall on your recommendation. So thank you very much for that. And I'm excited to do the history show. I'm going to need all of you, though, to download it and also to share it with your friends. It's not going to be political. It's not going to be your usual stuff. It's going to be history deep dives on a podcast. Really cool subject matter, and it's going to be called Shields High. And that's perhaps a perfect place to uh, close it up for the day because you know what's coming. Of course, Merry Christmas, and no matter what, Shields High.